want to start tonight by discussing the nature of symbolic ordinances. A symbolic ordinance is a rite or activity that's been divinely imbued with a religious or spiritual quality. Symbolic ordinances take otherwise mundane or meaningless actions and applies a special sacred significance to them. Such ordinances fill the page of the Torah where God commanded the children of Israel to perform rituals that on their surface may seem strange or even arbitrary, but since the Lord ascribed to them importance, they became necessary for the people to carefully observe. Many Christians can identify at least two such symbolic ordinances in the New Testament, baptism and the Lord's Supper. The physical action of baptism is to submerge a person in water. Now, in and of itself, there's nothing special about taking a watery plunge, but when it's performed in keeping with the New Testament's instructions concerning gospel obedience, baptism becomes special and symbolic. Paul even likened it to the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus in Romans 6, verses 3 through 6. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took an otherwise ordinary piece of unleavened bread and a cup filled with the fruit of the vine to institute a meal with spiritual significance. Jesus said that the loaf was his body, the cup was the new covenant, and the juice was his blood. You can read about this in Matthew 26, 26 through 29, and 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. Now, people eat bread and drink juice all the time, but when a congregation assembles on the first day of the week to share the Lord's Supper in honor of Christ, these emblems become special and symbolic of something far greater than bread, juice, and cup. Similarly, the Apostle Paul taught that there is something special and symbolic with regard to how men and women wear their hair. In 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 2, Paul is shifting to a new topic of discussion by first addressing the concept of headship. We read in verses 2 and 3, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Now, first, it might sound strange to hear Paul praising the Corinthians, considering all the problems that he has been addressing thus far in the letter. But I want to notify you that this section really begins all the way back in chapter 7, where Paul is responding to a series of questions the Corinthians had written to him concerning. And so you might imagine that they explained in their letter, well, Paul, you know, we're doing our best to keep all those traditions you taught us when you were among us for that year and a half that we read about in Acts 18, but we're confused about some things, and in particular about this concept of headship that you taught us. And so Paul praises them for their efforts, good job trying to keep all those traditions I gave to you, and then proceeds to clarify the issues about which they were confused. Now the word head, in, uh, is most commonly used in scripture, of course, just to describe a body part, but occasionally it has a figurative meaning, especially in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Paul the Apostle called Christ head over all things for the church in Ephesians 1. 
He wrote the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church in Ephesians 5, and that Jesus is the head of every ruler and authority, Colossians 2 and verse 10. So it seems from these examples that when Paul used the word head as a commentary on relationships and dynamics between different groups of people or individuals, he is referring to one's role as a figure of authority. Christ is head of the church and all rulers because all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him, according to Matthew 28 and verse 18. The husband is the head of the wife because God has established an order of leadership in the home. Now, the concept of headship has absolutely nothing to do with worth or value. It simply refers to a system of leadership that's necessary in the proper functioning of families, churches, and really any organized group of individuals who have come together towards a common goal. In fact, Paul even points out here that the head of Christ is God, and that's because Jesus voluntarily submitted himself to the Father's authority that he might accomplish heaven's will. We read about this in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Oh, likewise, married women are asked by God to voluntarily submit themselves to the leadership of their husbands. We see this in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. God's role assignments for wives and husbands were not given arbitrarily. Rather, these functions have been ordained since creation. And every family is called upon by God to excel in accomplishing the will of God by submitting themselves to their divinely given roles. In fact, all human beings, male and female alike, are subject to authority figures. Now, Paul is later going to explain why this order exists, but if you see here in verse 3, he basically for now just states it as an accepted fact. This was something that everybody believed. In the modern era, shaped by egalitarianism, it's obviously become very difficult for people to see submission and equality as simultaneously possible. However, the Father and Christ shine forth as the perfect model that two persons can be equal while one submits to the authority of the other. And that makes Jesus the most perfect example of submission the world has ever known. For though he existed in the form of God, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7. So Paul starts right at the get-go in verse 3 with outlining this system of headship. And from here, he goes on to introduce an issue that's related to this overarching theme. We read about the issue in verses 4 and 5. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered brings shame to his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered brings shame to her head. She's the same as a woman who has her head shaved. In the first century, when spiritual gifts were bestowed upon Christians by the apostles, some men and women were able to prophesy. Prophecy can be understood as proclaiming the word of God as revealed to an individual by the Holy Spirit. 
Paul said that the mysteries of the unfolding of the gospel of Christ have now been revealed by the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Ephesians 3 and verse 5. Now, Paul's going to go on at length to discuss the topic of spiritual gifts starting in chapter 12. But for now, we'll just think of praying and prophesying as examples of one exercising gifts in service to Christ. The expectation outlined by Paul is this. Men must be uncovered when praying and prophesying. Women must be covered when praying and prophesying. And this is really the main issue that's being addressed in this section of 1 Corinthians 11. And Paul's going to set forth to deal with this matter through four different arguments. So we're going to look at these arguments one at a time. First, Paul's going to give us an argument from honor-shame, then an argument from creation, an argument based on nature, and an argument from the universal practice of all the churches. So let's first talk a little bit about honor, shame. Now in Western culture, where we all live, we generally think of things as being right or wrong based on established law codes. Uh, something that breaks a law is wrong. If you don't break the law, you're probably not doing anything wrong. But in ancient cultures, and even in some modern Eastern cultures today, some actions are deemed right or wrong, not necessarily because they violate some law, but because that action might bring honor or shame. A person might ask this, would this action humiliate myself? Would it bring shame on my family or my community? Or conversely, would doing this elevate my status among my fellows? Or might it hinder the progress that I'm trying to make uh, and having good standing in this community of people? If it would bring me shame among these people, I won't do it. That's wrong. It's not something I should be doing. If it would bring me honor among this group of people, that is a thing I should do. Paul wrote this letter to a community of people who cared about honor and shame. So, of course, his arguments were impactful for them. And really, even though Western culture is not an honor-shame culture, honor and shame still have a little sway among us. You might think about how children pressure each other into doing something by uh, teasing them. Oh, if you won't do this, you must be a wimp. You're a coward. That's kind of an honor-shame system of pressure. Uh, so Paul wants to make sure that what the Corinthians were doing was not going to bring shame upon them. Instead, they needed to be doing those things which were honorable. Now, back here in 1 Corinthians 11, 4 and 5, the main challenge here in these verses is discerning the nature of this covering mentioned by the apostle. Some have understood Paul to be speaking of an artificial covering, which we'll just call the veil position for ease of language. And there are a couple of problems with the veil position. One's a historical problem, and the other is a grammatical one. Historically, it's actually pretty absurd to think that Paul would be opposed to men praying or prophesying with an artificial covering on their heads, considering his Jewish background. As Murphy O'Connor wrote, 
Since Paul grew up in a tradition where priests prayed with turbans on their heads, it's impossible to imagine him being disturbed to the extent indicated by the emotional tone of this passage simply because a man prayed with something on his head. Oh, that seems pretty reasonable. The priests were given turbans by God himself to wear as they ministered in the sanctuary. The grammatical problem with the veil position is, of course, that no kind of covering artificial is mentioned. The phrase, with his head covered, literally means hanging down from his head. And rather than an artificial covering, Paul will, of course, later make this statement. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering. And really, even if you don't look ahead at verses 14 and 15, and you just went back up to verse 5, there's an implication there that whatever Paul is talking about actually has something to do with hair. He says in that verse, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered brings shame to her head. She is the same as a woman who has her head shaved. So this has led some English Bibles to offer alternate readings in their translations that I think are worthy of consideration here. For example, in the NIV, they have footnoted this alternate reading of verses 4 and 5. Every man who prays or prophesies with long hair dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with no covering of hair dishonors her head. She's just like one of the shorn woman. Similarly, the expanded Bible, which instead of putting alternate readings in the footnotes, brackets it right into the text itself, says this. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered or with long hair brings shame to his head, meaning shame to Christ, who is the head of man. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered or no covering of hair brings shame to her head. She is the same as a woman who has her head shaved. And these alternate readings reflect how the overall context of this passage can and should determine the nature of the covering. This is how uh, Horsley puts it. The phrase down the head in verse 4, which he says is vague in the extreme, must be determined from the rest of the passage. The passage focuses on hairstyles, not head coverings or veils. Verbs for having one's hair cut off or letting one's hair grow long appear in verses 6 and 7 and 14, 15, respectively. Thus, down the head in verse 4 is best taken in a as a reference to long hair, uh, which would have been considered disgraceful for a man, particularly when praying or prophesying. In verses 4 and 5, Paul just asserts this idea. It's shameful for a man to pray or prophesy with long hair. It's shameful for a woman to pray or prophesy without long hair. He just declares it. But then he makes a little bit of an honor-shame analogy in verse 6 to really drive home the point. He says, for if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should be covered. Now, everyone agreed in Paul's day 
that it would have been shameful for a woman to cut her hair off entirely or to shave her head. No one would have disputed that with Paul. And so his argument is that lacking long hair is just as shameful, just as shameful as cutting all the hair off or shaving the head entirely. And again, the NIV gives this helpful footnote for verse six. If a woman has no covering, let her be for now with short hair, but since it's a disgrace for a woman to have hair shorn or shaved, she should grow it again. And this rendering I think is particularly helpful. We'll come back to it later. It sort of illuminates the path forward for women who don't currently have long hair. Essentially it says here to grow it again and in so doing she will be covered and able to pray and prophesy. Now, section two. Paul's gonna move from honor and shame to talk a little bit about creation. Verses seven through nine. A man ought not to cover his head, and again, in the NIV footnote, it says, have long hair as an alternate reading, since he's the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come for a woman, but woman for man, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, why should men not have long hair, but women should have long hair? Well, Paul here sees something that's intrinsic in the very created order itself and something that reflects God's own glory. We remember that back on the sixth day, God said, let us make humans in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over all that is on the earth. So God created humans in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This passage tells us that both men and women were created in God's image to bring him glory on the earth by ruling over it and representing him according to his will and to his design. A beautiful passage in the very beginning of our Bibles. So if we turn back to 1 Corinthians, we might ask, well, why then did Paul say that uh, man is the image of God, but woman is the glory of God? Of man, And I think because when Paul makes those statements, he's incorporating the material that he started with in verse 3. He's incorporating the theology of leadership or the theology of headship. In verse 3, remember it said, the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And so Paul's point here, this is key I think, Paul's point is that the way in which one brings glory to God is by fulfilling the role of submission assigned to each one. Let me try to explain that a little bit. Jesus prayed this way. I glorified you, the Father, on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. John 17 verses 4 and 5. Jesus says here that by submitting himself to the Father's will and accomplishing the task he was sent to the earth to accomplish, he, Jesus, glorified or honored the Father. So this is how Jesus brought glory to the Father. And Paul's point seems to be that in the same manner as Jesus, men, men also bring glory to God 
when we submit ourselves to Jesus Christ. And when we exercise those responsibilities and perform those tasks that we have been assigned. And so we glory Christ and that glory goes all the way up then to the Father. And likewise, women, when they submit themselves to those who have authority over them and when they accomplish the tasks God has assigned to them, they honor their leaders and they honor Christ. And that brings honor to the Father. So you have this sort of whole chain of image bearing and glorifying that's just going up and down. And as each in turn fulfills their God-given responsibilities, all are glorified and all are representing themselves in the manner that God has seen to assign. Now, the next verse is the most perplexing of the section. It's for this reason, Paul continues, that a woman ought to have authority over or a sign of authority on her own head because of the angels, verse 10. Because of the fact that men were created first, and women are the glory of men, women need long hair as a sign of authority. And I would say there are at least three ways, maybe more, at least three ways to understand what the sign of authority is. How do we understand sign of authority? Okay, I'm gonna give you the first two that I think are not as good as the third, all right? So, number one, it could be that Paul is saying her long hair is a sign that she has submitted herself to the authority figures over her. In this case, her long hair becomes a symbol that she is a woman with a spirit of humility and reverence. That's my least favorite of the three. Okay? Number two, it could be that her long hair is a sign that God has given her the authority to choose for herself. Her long hair is a reminder that she has been elevated by Christ. Her choices to obey or disobey, to submit or rebel are entirely her own. There's no longer male or female in Christ Jesus, and her long hair is an enduring symbol of her lofty position in the Lord. Maybe. Maybe. Okay? I think this one makes the most sense, and that is her long hair is a sign that God has granted her the authority to pray and prophesy. Her long hair is a manifestation of the power given to her by God in exercising her God-given gifts. She has that power all on her own to pray and to prophesy. Long hair on women are sign of that authority, Paul goes on to say, because of the angels. Because of the angels. Now, Siep and Rossner explain why this is such a tricky statement to uh, interpret. <laughs> angels are associated in such diverse ways with creation, worship, and women in the Old Testament and in Jewish literature. It's difficult to discern which one Paul might have in mind here. It's also unclear whether he's referring to good angels or evil ones. Let me say, if Paul has rebellious angels in mind, 
He may be saying that the woman's long hair is a reminder not to follow after those who have rejected God's authority. That's possible. Jude gave this warning in verse 6 of his book about the angels who did not keep their own position but deserted their proper dwelling. On the other hand, if Paul has in mind the holy angels, those holy spiritual beings which attend the very throne room of God, his aim here might be to remind women how serious it is that they wear their long hair when they're engaging in spiritual activities. After all, what happens when we are engaging in spiritual activities? Paul wants us to be reminded that we worship in a way that respects proper decorum because we're in the presence of God and his angelic attendants such that the community's full attention was on the glory of God. And so my point is, if it's the holy angels in mind, God is saying how serious it is to be one of his people who are exercising gifts in his service. It's like you're taken up into the throne room of heaven itself to worship and to glorify God in the presence of all the holy angels. So, I think the point here of 1 Corinthians 11 verse 10 seems to be this. A woman's long hair is a sign God has granted her the authority to exercise her gifts. And when she uses her abilities in service to Christ, she's bringing honor to God and all his heavenly host. Now, Paul concludes this section on creation with a needful reminder in verses 11 and 12. Nevertheless, nevertheless, even in view of this order of authority, if in the Lord woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman, for as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Paul just inserts this quick reminder so we don't forget. Christian women have a vitally important role in the kingdom of God and in the home. Christian men have a vitally important role in the kingdom of God and in the home. Women and men need each other to properly serve and glorify God. All right, number three. Paul has argued from honor, shame, and from creation. And now let's talk a little bit about nature. Verses 13 through 15 say this. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering. Now, verse 13 kind of resumes verse 5. Verses 6 through 12 is a bit tangential. And so in verse 5, we had that statement, every woman who prays or prophesies with no covering of hair dishonors her head. And so with that in mind, and these extra arguments from creation, the Corinthians need to ask themselves this question. Is it, is it in fact proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? And the obvious answer, based on everything Paul has already said, is no. But in case there's any lingering doubt, Paul makes an argument here from the very nature of things, teaching that men and women should have distinction in hair, men with short hair and women with long hair. Now, nature doesn't necessarily refer, refer to biology. 
I think some have argued that since women typically seem to be able to grow their hair longer than men, biology supports Paul's argument. But as we know, hair length varies wildly among different ethnic groups and from one man to another or one woman to another. Nature could also maybe refer to social or cultural realities. But even in the ancient world, the Jewish people and the Romans had all kinds of varied cultural views about these things. So it's my view that Paul is speaking of the natural distinction between men and women, which at Corinth were being blurred when women were wearing their hair short and men were growing their hair long. This is how Murphy O'Connor explains it quickly. The thrust of Paul's argument, therefore, is that the difference between men and women should be obvious. Even though they're equal in terms of their capacity to speak to God in prayer and to declare his word in prophecy. And I might not just add about this. Many Christians living in the modern West are very concerned about a gender ideology which seeks to erase distinctions between male and female. And if you have that concern, my, you should really take note here. Because one of the chief ways Christians can combat this false worldview and promote God's conceptions of male and female is by submitting ourselves to the divine order outlined here and wearing our hair in a way that the Apostle Paul asks us to wear it. Long hair on men is a disgrace. Long hair on women is their glory. And while long hair was only implied earlier, now, of course, it's stated explicitly, long hair is given to her as a covering, verse number 15. Okay, now we ask, a tricky question, and that is, what does it mean to have long hair? How long does a woman's hair need to be? What about the fact that some women's hair naturally grows longer than others? And this, of course, brings us to an important point about the English phrase, have long hair. Now, though the English translation here, have long hair, seems to indicate that maybe Paul had some kind of length in mind, the Greek in which Paul originally wrote shed some light on the actual intended meaning. Have long hair translates a Greek verb, kamao, which is defined in the following ways. Wear long hair, let one's hair grow long. If it was in the first person, it would be I wear the hair long. I allow the hair to grow long. And then Lo and Nida say to wear long hair as part of one's attire, and they add that in a number of languages, it may be necessary to translate kama'o as to let one's hair grow long or not to cut one's hair. Now, you might look at these and maybe you ask, well, how did these lexicographers come up with this definition? After all, this word is only used here in all the New Testament in verses 14 and 15. So where did they get these particular ideas about allowing hair to grow long and even not cutting one's hair? Well, the answer is that even though this verb is only used here in the Bible, it's not the only place that's ever been used in the Greek-speaking world of the ancient times when the apostles lived. So I want to give you one example from the writings of Epiphanius, who was a fourth century bishop of Salamis on the Greek island of Cyprus. 
Epiphanius was born in Palestine. He was educated in Egypt. He spoke Hebrew, Syriac, Egyptian, Greek, and Latin, and his language skills were so well known that Jerome, who was the man who translated the Latin Vulgate, called him a pentaglot, okay? So this guy had some chops when it came to language. In his book, The Panarean of Epiphanius of Salamis, Epiphanius condemned a group of monks who were letting their hair grow long. And he said three things about those monks. Number one, what they were doing was wrong because they were wearing their hair as only women should. Number two, what they were doing was wrong because after all, have they not read Paul's words that men should not have long hair? And he quotes 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen to them. And number three, he says they were wrong because they were using the Nazarite vow as a justification for their practice. Epiphanius made the case that the Nazarite vow only applied to the ancient Jews, but his condemnation of the monks is not really the important point. The important point is, if the monks were letting their hair grow long, that is kama'o, and they were using the Nazarite vow as the basis of their practice, which is what Epiphanius says they were doing, then they believed no razor should come upon their head and that they would let the locks of their hair grow long, as the Nazarite vow tells us in number six and verse five. So based on these ancient uses of the verb, some scholars have concluded that the meaning of kama'o is not just to let one's hair grow long, but in actuality is to have uncut hair. When Paul spoke of long hair or being covered, he meant hair that is continually growing, unimpeded in any way. And of course, the length of a woman's hair will vary depending on a number of uncontrollable factors, such as genetics and ethnicity and certain types of medical treatments. But the bottom line is this. Just as it is wrong for women to cut their hair short, Paul says, or shave it off completely, it is equally wrong for them to deliberately shorten it at all. That's the argument he's making. Long hair being covered means having hair that's allowed to grow and never willfully shorten. Now, of course, there's no length requirement. Obedience to this command dictates that women simply allow their hair to grow without shortening it. And we've returned to this NIV footnote from verse 6. So, if a woman does have no covering, that is, she has been cutting her hair, let her, for now, be with short hair. But, since it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair shorn or shaved, she should grow it again. That's Paul's remedy and antidote for what he believes is a problem. The hair that's allowed to grow is the hair that constitutes a covering. And now we quickly get to our last section, Paul's remarks about the universal practice of all congregations. And this is verse 16, where the apostle says, if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now this rendering, which is the New King James here, and the King James is quite similar, 
uh, seems confusing. It's left some people confused, but if we just survey some modern translations, we can see what Paul is getting at here. The NASB says, if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. The NIV, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. The CEV says, this is how things are done in all of God's churches. And that's why none of you should argue about what I've said. And I made sure to put that one up there knowing that the Q&A is only a few minutes away. And finally, the NLT says, but if anyone wants to argue about this, I simply say that we have no other custom than this, and neither do God's other churches. There are actually four occasions throughout the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul does something very similar to this. He makes an appeal to the universal practice of all God's churches. Way back in chapter 4, he was going to send them Timothy, his beloved and trustworthy child, who would remind them of his ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. In chapter 7, when he's dealing with all of these varied social situations the Corinthians were finding themselves in, and he says, you just remain as you are when you were called. Let each of you lead the life the Lord has assigned to which God has called you. This is my rule in all the churches. Chapter 7 and verse 17. And later, when he's trying to figure out and wade through all the dysfunction and chaos in their assemblies in chapter 14, he reminds us that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. So the Apostle Paul called upon all Christians in every place to conform to the divine standards revealed by the Holy Spirit. And my, this should be a message that reverberates in the hearts and minds of believers today. You know, we, when we read those portions of the Bible that we're inclined to accept, we find every reason to do them and to teach them to others. But sometimes we read things and they trouble us. They trouble our preconceived notions of what's good or right. And then sometimes we fall into this trap where we look for every reason we can to permit ourselves to ignore those bits of the Word of God. And we know this is such a dangerous path. So we return to what I think is the main section of this whole larger section. I think verses 4 through 6 are the thesis of this entire discussion. And I've gone ahead and insert Shahe Jurgen's additions based on what we have studied. Every man who prays or prophesies with long hair dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies without long hair dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not allow her hair to grow, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should let her hair grow long. And the base translation here that I've inserted my own comments is the NIV in this particular reading. How people wear their hair might seem like a trivial matter to some, like those old rituals that we read about in books like Leviticus. We might think, well, that's odd. Why would God want them to do that? And why did he have them do this? And we might understand the basis of the ritual itself. But when we see the great spiritual significance 
that God imbued in those practices. We recognize that even though we might not understand the function of the ritual, we can understand that the ritual was testifying to something even greater than the practice itself. My, this is how it is with baptism and the Lord's Supper, dunking in water, eating a little bread and drinking a little juice. And we might think, well, what's so special about that? Well, on their own, there's not that spe nothing special about that. But we glorify God and we proclaim the death of our Lord Jesus when believers follow those symbolic ordinances. And I think we should look at this passage and we should bask in the beautiful symbolism that has been established for us by the Holy Spirit of God that we might endeavor in every way, in every way, to glorify God by submitting ourselves to his divine authority and by practicing and executing those commandments and instructions he has entrusted us to perform. He's given us his word to guide us. And so let us be guided by it.